welcome to All By Our Shelves, a library podcast of the Haverford Township Free Library. My name is Mary Bear Shannon. I'm a reference librarian here at the Haverford Township Free Library, and I am joined with my other Haverford reference colleagues, and we are here to talk about the books that we have been reading just recently. Um, and so I am joined by Kim Christopher, who is a reference librarian, and uh, Mandy Falwell, and Amy, uh, and Amy Moskowitz. Hello. So you want to say hello to Kim? <laughs> hello. Okay. So we're going to start to talk about some of the books that we have been reading. So Kim, uh, why don't you start first? Uh, yes. Hello, uh, Kim here. <laughs> so what I have been reading is the what's called the First Law Trilogy by Joe Abercrombie. I finished the first book, The Blade Itself, and just recently finished the second before they are hanged, and still yet to get to the third and the last in the trilogy, Last Argument Keens, but I'm eager to keep on reading to see how this trilogy resolves and wraps itself up. So basically the whole thing with the whole trilogy, the synopsis is that thousands of years ago in this fantasy medieval world, Humans and demons lived alongside each other. Maybe they lived in harmony. We don't know exactly because thousands of years ago, history gets warped. <laughs> but um, suddenly, all the demons were banished to what's called the other side. You could say it's hell, another dimension, whatever. But after they were banished, several laws were put into place, where one of them being was that don't eat human flesh because, you know, cannibalism bad, but also that... Since it's a fantasy world, anyone who eats human flesh becomes monstrous, superhuman, gaining strength and all that sort of thing, but very bad either way. But then the first law, why it's called the First Law Trilogy, is to never interact with the other side, to basically make a deal with the devils on the other side for power. And so fast forward to modern times in this fantasy world that everyone's forgotten about this. It's just something they think is just a myth, but... Behind the scenes, some people are plotting to, shall we say, release the demons or make the debt deal with the devil, so to speak. And so the story follows this group of people who are trying to stop this plot, as well as the other people involved in all the politics and the wars between the nations of this fantasy world. Because at the same time, this group, who these people trying to go to the other side and unleash these demons, they're the ones who are also coordinating all the wars in this world causing all this chaos but uh yeah i i finished the second book like i said and i'm eager just to see how the trilogy wraps up um i actually have a question is this a standalone trilogy or is this a part of a larger world part of a very large world because reading everything I haven't finished the trilogy but after he finished this trilogy about a little over 10 years ago he started another series of books they were short novels in a way not connected and yet still connected set in the same world some of the characters are still there but entirely new cast different story and then just started a new trilogy recently again set in the same world but it's interesting to read because the first law trilogy is just strictly fantasy and second series of books he did again fantasy but with this new trilogy he just finished up this year it's moving into the modern world so to speak where technology is appearing and so the new trilogy he did is dealing with the conflict between magic and technology interesting so kim you said that you're getting into the third one where do you see this third book going I see it as just resolving things because the second one left on sort of, you should say, uh, the second one where it leaves on a cliffhanger 
and then things are unresolved. So I just see the third one resolving all these plots that are going on because there's all these wars, all the politics, and the story is all told from the perspective of six different characters but connected to each other and some of them are involved in the wars and all the politics. Then there's the group of people involved trying to stop the plot to unleash the demons from the other side. So I see it as resolving that one and then also finishing up all the wars going on in this world. Okay, so Mandy, what have you been reading? I am reading The Sentence uh, by Louise Erdrich. She has written a number of other novels. She's a Native American author. And uh, this one is just beautiful and complex. I struggled how to approach this novel on this podcast because of that complexity. But I think that NPR put it best when they said that this book is a ghost story that sometimes shifts into social realism. It's an interesting juxtaposition, really. Uh, It begins and mostly takes place from the perspective of the main character, a Native American woman named Tookie, who during a period of drug dependency ends up in prison after stealing a body for her girlfriend. While there, reflecting on the capriciousness of the sentencing system that gave her 60 years behind bars, she acquires a monstrous focus and love of reading. When she is paroled early, uh, she then gets married and gets a job at a small bookstore called Birchmark Books in Minneapolis, Minnesota that specializes in indigenous works. For the most part, she is happy and she moves beyond her wayward past to make a good life for herself and her husband, who assists in spiritual Native American rituals and with tribal things when he can. Uh, So this is the setup for the rest of the story that begins with a ghost story. She states that after a period in her new life that is stable, in November 2019, death took one of my most annoying customers, but she did not disappear. Uh, So begins the haunting of a white woman named Flora of the bookstore. While in life, Flora was a woman who forever strove to contrive some Native American heritage for herself, she became a ghost that at first only Tookie can hear. When Flora's daughter gives Tookie the painful memoir of a Native American woman that Flora was reading when she died, Tookie becomes convinced that the book killed her. As Tookie struggles with how to react and approach this with the rest of the employees at the bookstore, not to mention her husband, a time of external unrest takes place as everyone struggles with the COVID-19 pandemic, with the Black Lives Matter movement, and with the killing of George Floyd. As people suffer around her from COVID and the native population moves in protesting solidarity with the Black Lives Matter cause, Tookie worries that the bookstore she works in will burn in the riots and works about fixing her relationship with her daughter Hedda and her new grandson uh, Jarvis and dealing with Jarvis's dad as well who is convinced that he's got some familial line to like a Rougarou, a spiritual animal uh, or a person that can turn themselves into an animal. So... I just want to add one more thing. One of the really cool things about this book is how Tookie grew. She begins angry and drug addicted, close with her emotions, and becomes even harder in prison and very jaded. But at the end of the book, when she is finally able to process the indignities of her own life by actually absorbing and thinking about what caused the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as the effects of having to face the ghost in the bookstore and her own spirituality questions, it results in a tenderness that no one in her life had ever expected she could possess. And that was really cool. That's the book. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like there's a lot going on in the book. So is this told entirely from perspective, uh, first person perspective, or? Yes. It is told 
predominantly from Tookie's perspective, which is actually really interesting because there is a lot of spirituality that happens in the book, and especially, you know, the Native American spirituality. And Tookie struggles with her heritage and she struggles with that spirituality because she doesn't feel that herself, even though her husband does. So that's an interesting part of the book. But yeah, it all takes place from her perspective. I, I think it's interesting that we're starting to see books that are actually relating the the events of our this pandemic that we have been in. And I, I wonder how you feel about how she portrayed it and whether, you know, if she told this story 10 years later, would it be different based on, you know, our, our more immediate perspective of, of the pandemic today? I'm not sure if 10 years would make a difference uh, just because people in 10 years would have still lived through it. I think when it gets beyond the realm of people who have lived through it, it will not be the same. Hmm. Right now, it is very raw, it is very real, and still painful for a lot of people. And I think that time will dull that a bit, even for people who strive to reimagine it. If they weren't there, there's no way they can really imagine that. So that perspective will change over time. Yes, yeah, yeah I think so. Hi, this is Mandy. Thank you for joining us here at our All By Our Shelves podcast. If you like the books that we review and you'd like to read some other books with us, we do offer seven different book clubs. Stay tuned at the end of this podcast and Mary will give you a, a rundown of these book clubs that you could join. Thank you very much. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. All right, so Amy, what have you been reading? Hi, this is Amy. Um, I just finished a wonderful book called Matrix by Lauren Groff. This is probably my favorite book that I've read so far this year, and it is also a National Book Award finalist. Groff is best known for her novel Fates and Furies, and in this novel, Matrix, which has nothing to do with the popular Keanu Reeves film, but rather the word originating from mater, the Latin word for mother, we are taken back to the year 1158. The novel is about Marie de France, a poet who did in fact exist, However, so little is known about her life that Groff is able to take many liberties in telling her story. One of the major liberties she takes is making Marie the unrequited love interest of Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, who is also a real historical figure and one of the most powerful women in 12th century Europe. In the book, when Marie was young, she was orphaned and sent to Eleanor's court, as she was described, frankly, as ugly and unmarriageable. At about age 17, she was banished from there and directed to run a failing abbey of starving nuns. Though of little faith, Marie proves to be a strong leader and soon the abbey flourishes and Marie finds herself respected and in a position of power. Throughout the book, Marie has 19 visions which guide her leadership of the abbey and her personal and spiritual decisions. Marie's life, her loves, struggles, and successes her victories, painful losses, and personal battles with faith and power are woven throughout the book. She is a captivating heroine, protagonist, and matrix. What brought this book to life for me personally was Groff's writing. I listened to this on audiobook, which was read by the super talented Ajoa Ando. At times I could visualize the surroundings and even see myself there. Groff is an amazing storyteller, gifted with a knack for knowing when to be descriptive, and when to step back and be vague. Yet the reader is still aware of just what she is intending on getting across. I would highly recommend Matrix to anybody who's interested in historical fiction, anybody who really likes stories about feminism and stories with a strong heroine, and then anybody who really likes 
really strong literary fiction and read it before it wins the National Book Award. <laughs> so you mentioned that the main character isn't really spiritual. Mm -hmm. uh, does that change through the book with her, with her visions or anything like that? Um, her spirituality does kind of shift and flow throughout the book. She starts out really questioning the existence of God, but she tends to have a religious connection to especially the Virgin Mary. There's not really a mention of any Christ-like figure. There's really not a lot of male figures in the book at all. Groff doesn't write a lot of men into the book. There's mostly Marie and Eleanor and the nuns at the Abbey. If there are any men mentioned, they're kind of on the sidelines or outside of the Abbey. They're just kind of these bothersome figures that like kind of live outside of the walls of the Abbey. So there's really not like a Jesus figure that she prays to. If there's anybody that she can kind of see herself connected to, it's the Virgin Mary. But she does kind of struggle with faith as, as many of us do throughout our lives. <laughs> it sounds like uh, the book is kind of celebrating feminism and strong women characters. One of the things about historical fiction that there's been criticism is that it almost, you know, it seems like all of our characters are woke. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't always represent how one might actually be in the 12th century. Do you think that the story has some authenticity? Does it, does it feel authentic to the period? Or does it tend to go the other way where it's it's kind of, injecting our 21st century values? I think that's a good question. I think that Groff was trying to use the story to mirror some of the events of today and to kind of make these characters relatable to today's woman. But yet I do feel like this could have happened in the 12th century, partially because this struggling abbey that Marie was put in charge of was very separate from the rest of the world. This abbey uh, was surrounded by, at one point, a labyrinth that Marie was in charge of building. And because of its separation from the world, and because of Marie putting such a focus on um, just her relationship being just sons, I think that even though she was such a powerful woman, and at some points in the novel, she took on roles that only men would have been seen as doing at the time, you know, historically, women that did that were seen as witches or were seen as, as mystics or this was seen as being wrong. She kind of got away with it to some extent. And I think that, that this really could have happened because of who Marie was and, and how this character was written. And how would you say this might compare to her previous book, uh, Writing Style Change, Still Engrossing? <laughs> So I actually have not yet read Fates and Furies. Now that I read Matrix, I would really like to. But I know Fates and Furies was actually about a marriage. So I think that this is widely different. <laughs> Radically, it sounds like. Yes. And you listen to the audiobook. Would mm -hmm. you suggest that or over the book? or? I would recommend the audiobook for sure. I think that the reader was really involved in getting into the different characters. She voiced Marie very different than she voiced, say, Eleanor of Aquitaine. So you can really hear the difference between the different characters when she was speaking the different parts. So that, you know, as you're listening, as I was in the car, you could really get a sense for, you know, who was speaking and when. She also had certain accents that she brought up for the locations. But even if you can just get your hands on the novel at this point, I would recommend doing that as well. 
Okay, so this is Mary, and I read Harlem Shuffle by Colson Whitehead. Whitehead is known for previous books, Nickel Boys and Underground Railroad. And this was really kind of a, um, in some ways, a, a different book for him. But in some ways, I think there are some real similarities in the way he portrays his characters. The main character in Harlem Shuffle is Ray Carney. This is actually taking place in Harlem in the late 1950s and 1960s. And Ray Carney uh, really straddles two worlds, the straight and the crooked. The book says, Ray Carney was only slightly bent when it came to being crooked. His father had been a local hustler and petty thief, but you know, but to his wife, he is a small business owner and his customers and neighbors, he's an upstanding furniture salesman. But I think his past does follow him, but as the book uh, says, end quote, the way he saw it, living taught you that you didn't have to live the way you'd been taught to live. You came from one place, but more important, was where you decided to go. And I think that is really the crux of this story is Ray coming from a certain world that his father kind of raised him in, um, but also where he wanted to go. It really is a book of aspirations, but it really does give you a really good picture of life in Harlem during this period. It talks about the hardships of black life in New York City and as well as in America talks about the civil rights movement, the infiltration of drugs into the black community, student activism, police brutality, and corruption, really, of on the part of everybody. Police, politicians, rich, poor, white, and black. And really the way he, he interacts with his world, but also strives to do better for himself and for his family. The book is full of really colorful characters, that are masterfully woven into the story by Whitehead. There's Freddie, his cousin, who is always dragging him into the crooked part of this world. Pepper, who's one of the thieves that was part of a heist at the Hotel Teresa, who was known as the Waldorf Astoria of Harlem, which his cousin and a bunch of guys robbed. But also the characters like his aunt and his, his wife, Elizabeth, and her family. Uh, Elizabeth comes from a definitely more well-to-do black family in Harlem. They live on something called Strivers Row. And Elizabeth, the wife's uh, parents, never think Ray is good enough. And so he's always fighting against that feeling from more well-off black businessmen and professionals. And I think that there is, there's really some interesting commentary about corruption because I think that we just assume that it's people who are poor but what Ray really finds is that all people can be crooked and the hardest is coming up against really wealthy crookedness because at the end of the book he comes across kind of what we call really old New York white very very wealthy and they're never really seen as crooked because they're, they're forgiven because of their wealth. And I think that Ray really kind of comes to his understanding about being crooked, but also being upstanding. And I think that that is a real balance in this book. Colson Whitehead uh, is just is an amazing author and novelist. He, he really weaves in historical figures, events, and language throughout the novel. And it has been said that this is really his 
his love letter to Harlem. I did struggle to get started on this book. I was about 50 pages in before I really started to pick up the pace and, and want to keep reading it. So if you're going to read Harlem Shuffle, try to get through those first couple of chapters because it's definitely well worth it. It's a great story and I, and I highly recommend it. Well, you said you struggled toward the, until after that 50 pages, but what hooked you to keep on reading before that 50 pages? I think that I, I knew that Whitehead was a great author, and I think what finally kind of sucked me in was that I cared about the characters. I think at the at the beginning, I kind of was, it was slow to kind of figure out who, who people were and what the lay of the land was. But then I was really rooting for Ray Carney, and, and I think that's what really got me into the novel and kept me reading until then I, I couldn't put it down. Yeah, to kind of piggyback on what Kim was just asking, I was going to ask, um, what made you find Carney likable? Well, I think that what I love is his internal dialogue, and Whitehead really shows that, is that his struggling between his past what he'd like to be, the the people who either make his life harder, I think a lot of them make it harder, and his really his resiliency. You know, last time in this podcast, I talked about the book by Oprah Winfrey, What Happened to You, and we talked about, you know, at the end, sometimes, even though we've had trauma in our lives, sometimes it just takes one person to, to help us kind of establish and develop that resiliency, because I don't, I don't think resiliency is inborn. I think it's something you develop. And I think for Carney, it was his aunt. She was a nurse. She was a steadying force in his life. And I think that, um, yeah, he had some tough growing up experiences. His mother died early. His father was not around a whole lot. And he was, you know, he was a criminal. But I do think that that, that steadying influence of his aunt made a big difference. And I think what makes him so likable is that he is balancing all of that. And we're hearing all of that balancing in his head with really this sense that what he really wants is the best for his family. So I think that's why I liked him. When I read a book, sometimes the title doesn't work with the book in a way that makes sense to me. Did you find that with this book for you? Well, at first, I had no idea what Harlem Shuffle was was going to mean. I think by the end, I definitely understood. I think that it's, in many ways, it's kind of that, uh, I mean, shuffle can mean like you're kind of slowly ambling along. But I didn't really read that. I read Harlem Shuffle as, as almost like a dance. And I think that in many ways, Ray was dancing a dance with his life between the crooked and the straight world that he both occupied. I think it's interesting because he made an effort to separate out those worlds and they really didn't know a whole lot about each other until right at the end, Pepper, who he ends up being kind of associated with, he was part of the first heist and then he kind of became associated with him with some other things ends up coming to dinner with his family. And it was really kind of a the first time that those worlds kind of intersected. And it was okay. So I, I think what's clear to me is that, you know, Harlem Shuffle is is really the dance in his own life and in his own mind about these these two worlds. All right, so those are the books that the Haverford Township Free Library reference librarians have been reading this past month. We're glad that you joined us and we hope you have a great day. at the Haverford Township Free Library. love books, as you can tell from our podcasts, All By Our Shelves, and some of our past programs like Reading with Reference and Staff Picks, 
And then way before the pandemic, our Book Bites Luncheon, where we talked about the books that we had read each year. So we love books, and that's why we have book groups here that you can choose from. One of our book clubs is Books on Tap, which meets on the third Tuesday of each month at the Crossbar on Darby Road. Uh, that is led by Mandy. It's at 7 p.m., and that is usually books that are just the latest fiction, bestseller fiction, uh, and you can join that. Uh, we would love to have you at the Crossbar. One of our other book clubs is the Nonfiction Book Club, run by Amy. Nonfiction, they're all different types of topics that uh, she covers and the books that she chooses for our nonfiction book group. That meets on the fourth Wednesday of the month at 7 p.m. That is currently meeting on Zoom. Um, one of our most recent additions is our Graphic Novel Club, which is being run by Kim. That is the first Wednesday of the month. That is meeting on Zoom as well at 7 p.m. Graphic novels, if you're not familiar with them, are an amazing, I wouldn't call it a new genre anymore, um, but it is newer um, and it co can cover fiction, nonfiction, comics, and, and Kim is having a good time picking all the different selections for that book group. We also have Hooked on History, which meets in seasons in uh, groups of two. Uh, we meet on the fourth Monday of the month. Usually we read a book together. Often it is a historical fiction book. And then the second time we meet the next month, we all read around the topic of whatever the first book was about. And that's run by me, Mary, and I usually provide that book list. And then we have a conversation that kind of delves deeper into whatever topic we are looking at during those sessions of, of two. And we also have our Cookies and Mystery, which has uh, been around a long time. It meets uh, at 11 a.m. on the third Thursday of the month. We choose a theme for each month, and then we provide a book list, and then people uh, report what they read. Um, topics have been like medical mysteries. In December, we're going to be reading award winners, people, uh, authors and titles that have won some of the mystery awards like uh, the Agatha Award and the Anthony Award. Our longest running book club is Reading Around. That meets on the fourth Tuesday of the month at 7 p.m. That is currently meeting on Zoom. So is Cookies and Mystery. That is also meeting on Zoom. And Reading Around again is a, um, a, a group that reads the latest fiction uh, and that is run by Amy. And then lastly, we also have Cookbook Club. Uh, Cookbook Club is a group of people who love to cook and love to explore some of our cookbooks in our collection. We select a cookbook every month and everybody selects a recipe, prepares it, and brings it to share. Um, that group meets on the second Monday of the month. In December, we will be actually meeting on Zoom, but we are participating in a modified cookie exchange. For more information, contact the reference office. So that is our book group uh, rundown. If you are interested in any of these books, contact the reference department. We are happy to 
get you a copy of the book, uh, and get you the link so that you can join the discussion online.